Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, used the world as a testing ground for his watches, sending them to the most extreme locations, supporting 20th century explorers in their quest for discovery. As the 21st century unfolds, Rolex continues the legacy of its founder, supporting the explorers of today on their new mission to make the planet perpetual. The Earth is dependent on the individuals and organisations committed to finding solutions to preserve our home, if not for us, then for future generations. And with the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative, we're one step closer to a planet with this hope. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on Rolex.org. It's the year 1907, the year of many great moments in history, from the birth of one of Mexico's greatest artists, Frida Kahlo, to historic scientific breakthroughs, as Albert Einstein begins to apply laws of gravity to the theory of relativity. But in today's episode, we turn to another groundbreaking moment in 1907 that transformed modern history. The moment when the first fully synthetic plastic was pioneered. It was the early 1900s when Belgian chemist and marketeer Leo Bakerland combined two chemicals, formaldehyde and phenol under heat and pressure to create synthetic plastic, which he christened Bakelite. For over a century now, plastic has revolutionised the way we live. In its early uptake, the possibilities of plastic gave people an almost utopian vision of a future with abundant material wealth, thanks to an inexpensive, safe, sanitary substance that could be shaped by humans to their every whim. But it wasn't long before the initial excitement for plastic shifted and we began to see the toll that this man-made material can have on our natural world. From overflowing landfills, dangers of chemical pollution, and plastic debris destroying ocean life, the race to curb plastic waste has never been so urgent. But the race might be coming to an end. With these calculations for polyethylene category, which is a third of all the plastics out there, with our technology, we can address somewhere around 25% of that. This is, you know, a way for companies like Novolube to lead the world into the future. There is a journey to get there. I'm Adam Vaughan, the environment editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope in partnership with Rolex. Today, we're hearing from the woman who is revolutionising the world's plastic waste problem. In this episode, we're connecting to the west coast of the US. The Sunshine State of California, where palm trees line the streets and the global center for technology, Silicon Valley, boasts a talented pool of entrepreneurs known for their innovation, collaboration, and risk-taking mentality. And in this episode, my guest is no exception to that rule. Have you had to come far this morning to the studio, Miranda? Uh, It was like a 40-minute drive. Um, okay. I live in San Jose, so it's on the kind of the southern end of uh, Silicon Valley. Yeah. Where we are here is sort of like in the in the middle, slightly southish. Miranda graduated from Pennsylvania University in 2016, and has since made it her mission to throw the rule book on what we thought we knew about recycling plastic out of the window. A lot of it is ignorance, but it's not ignorance because people are naive. It's, it's ignorance because it's really a hard problem. This is a systemic issue that needs new technologies. Co-founder of Novaloop, the upcycling company, Miranda is a scientist at heart with an entrepreneurial passion to change the status quo on how we manage the life cycle of plastic. 
and she's no stranger to challenging questions on the subject. But rather than jumping in at the deep end, I thought it best to strip it right back to the basics and ask, why is plastic bad for the environment? It's not necessarily that plastic is bad for the environment, but it's more how plastic as a systemic problem, how it is being produced and handled is bad for the environment. So if we begin with how it's produced, I mean, plastic is made from petro uh, fossil fuels, petrochemicals, and uh, the extraction of fossil fuels for making plastics is an extremely polluting and also very intensive process, less so than when we mine for fuels, but still nonetheless polluting. And the discardment of plastic is even a bigger issue than the production of it, which is that when plastics today are finished their single-use life, a majority of plastics are designed to last a short amount of time for their actual commercial functions. Most of it is being landfilled if you're in the U.S. And if you're in Europe, it is being incinerated because there's not enough land to be landfilled, which means that the carbon in the plastic is uh, emitted as CO2. So this is a a big problem on, on many levels, not just on climate change, on the physical pollution contamination of the environment. As a material, it disintegrates very slowly, but it does not decompose like organic matter does. And so you end up having fragments of plastics in the environment that ends up harming natural wildlife. So it's not inherently evil, it's how we sort of manage the life cycle of it that's the issue. You know, we've been using plastic for more than a century. What sort of cumulative kind of impacts are we seeing from that? You know, in, in, and I'm obviously not thinking in terms of how one, you know, gets a coffee cup or whatever or plastic products in our life, but in the wider environment, what, are the, what sort of impacts are we seeing? I think what initially caught everybody's attention on social media, especially when this started spreading, is you see wildlife getting entangled and entrapped in plastic on the beaches. Turtles, you know, you see whales wash out with bellies full of plastic and they're not able to uh, eliminate that from their bodies and then they die. That is, I would say, a very visceral but a minority of where the plastics go. If you go to places in the developing world, you will see that there are illegal or informal dumping sites across the countries there where for the past 30 plus years, Western nations, wealthier nations, have relied on the developing world as their landfill. The standard default way of recycling, if you will, for the longest time in places like California has been, you know, over um, you know, over 30 to 50 percent of the plastic in California that our governments were classified diverted from landfill or recycled is actually just packaged up and sent over to, to China for the longest time. And in 2018, you know, the Chinese government decided to ban the import of scrap plastic. This is something that's been long overdue. It used to have value when Western countries were less good at recovering valuable materials and plastic was a more valuable material. So it had actual recycling purpose and use in the developing world. But as plastic became more commoditized and in general cheaper and Western countries became better at extracting anything of value before sending the rest over, you know, it really just became exported pollution. So this is, you know, on a on a socioeconomic level, how much plastic pollution you see in the environment is a symbol of essentially the overall disparity, you can say, of, of a community. Well, that's really interesting. And as you say, a lot of people might think about things like Blue Planet too, but the, the, you've, you've pointed out they're the biggest sort of past the parcel issue that's going on. And uh, I think the UK, like you mentioned, California, UK also used to send a lot of 
waste to China and then started sending it to Turkey and Turkey said it didn't want it and now we're looking at other countries. People might wonder sort of why is it really such a big issue? Why, you know, isn't plastic relatively easy to recycle? Why is it so hard to recycle? That's been the longest, I would say, misconception on the topic of plastic, which is that the creators, the companies that really benefited from the mass commercialization of plastics in the 1990s, in the 1980s, when people started scrutinizing, you know, should we be creating so much throwaway material? Should 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 that be the lifestyle? You know, there were campaigns rolled out to say that this this is actually a recyclable material. This is guilt free. Don't worry about throwing it away. And then the entire recycling symbols and everything is created. The issue is that, you know, it's not that recycling doesn't exist. You know, today, about 10 percent of plastics do get recycled. But the issue that has never been talked about until relatively recently is that 90 percent is not being recycled. And that 90 percent is what's causing the problem. If we don't do something about this now, what challenges are we sort of storing up for the future? Because presumably population growth and affluence, you know, we're going to presumably end up using more plastic in the future. Yes. I mean, that is the, the direction in general is, you know, plastic has become an inseparable part of our modern day lives. Everything from the things we absolutely need, like healthcare and medical products, all the way through to things that enable our convenience, like being able to grab food on the way, you know, to the subway, et cetera. It's very, very hard to get plastics out of our lives. In fact, we don't really have the right alternative materials. You cannot replace all the plastics in the world with paper, for example, or aluminum. There's just, there's not enough resources to do so. Plastics are are very important in in the function they play. But if we continue handling them um, in such a linear life cycle, meaning that we make them, we use them, we throw them away, the way that we continue to act like out of sight, out of mind, then what we're going to be faced is, you mean, you've, we've all seen Wally. <laughs> that that's the future, you know. Wealthier countries will, you know, be able to afford technologies to keep it out of sight as much as possible. But we're all going to be suffering in poorer nations. This is, you know, more and more of their things. They're trying to, you know, pave the roads, everything out of plastic waste. But without new technologies that are able to properly in new ways be able to make use of the plastic waste with only existing technologies the most you can do is is try to incorporate some of that into some mechanical structures and the rest is going to be waste so it's a big problem and it's not an easy one because it's not like there's just one type of plastic in the world mm. um there you know the difference between a polyethylene plastic and a pvc is almost as if you're talking about paper to metal mm. in some ways when you're imagining what are the ways that you can repurpose it so it's something that i think requires a lot more attention societal attention that's really interesting to a good reminder that to not just think of it as one you know homogenous thing when we talk about plastic and like, i think that's a really interesting point as well you make about the inequity of it there as well i don't think that's something many people might have thought about so look i just want to cast things back a bit and if you think back to when you were younger i just want to get a sort of sense of how you got here how you know when do you sort of first you know i'm sure maybe your, your your first interest in schooling wasn't like in plastic but maybe in science more broadly what were the beginnings of your interest yeah i don't think that you know plastic is is really a formal study <laughs> when <laughs> when people are younger maybe it should be you know um you know modern materials and and how we should properly handle them you know in society uh, my my interest has always been in the natural world and science that has always mattered to me but at the same time i've always been 
fairly well-rounded in humanities and in social studies as well. And so I would say some of my first inroads with the plastic issue was was quite young. When I was in elementary school, I had an opportunity actually to go on a year immersion experience in China to the hometown my dad grew up in. And this is a small third tier city that was actually a cold town not too long ago. And even in that environment, I, I was actually the person in charge of bringing the recycling of the classroom, you know, over to there were these, you know, informal collection sites were kind of like a depot, you know, they would give you a refund. And I was the person kind of volunteer responsible for that because I, I just hated to see waste, you know, and nobody wanted to do the job. I didn't really understand. It seemed like they all felt like it was very un- unglamorous. You know, you wanted to be the class representative for the academic studies and, and not for managing resources and whatnot. <laughs> and then in high school, I um, actually met my current best friend when we were in the recycling club together. At the time, it was the recycling club. Later, we when we took over the leadership of it, we rebranded the environment club, and we ended up realizing we were the wealthiest club in, in the school because of all the, the money from the recycling that we had you know, collected over the past 10 years before we were even there and invested the money into building an organic veg- vegetable garden for the school. And and so my, you know, my interests have always been very community oriented and I'm very fascinated by kind of the relationship of humans with their materials. It's really strange to me, <laughs> you know, why people look down on trash and those who work with it because not too long ago the stuff that was in the trash was valuable goods that we spend a lot of money. We make a big deal out of. <laughs> so that's very interesting to me. So it goes a long way back. And, and, and so tell me about your company, Nova Loop. What is it and how did that come about? So uh, Nova Loop is a venture-backed startup. We're based here in California, and we're really focused on creating the plastic circular economy, especially for plastics that are really hard to recycle today. So I mentioned 90% of plastics that are produced there are not recycled or not, not really even recyclable. There are no markets to absorb that waste material. So we're addressing that 90%, and we're developing new chemical technologies to be able to transform that plastic waste into high-performance, high-value materials, and to do so in a way that's economical so that there's no price difference between our products versus the products that people are currently using in those categories. So a circular economy is a bit of an emerging term here, but it's the the vision for the future where in the world of plastics, instead of we make, we use, and we discard, we kind of bury it like it's dead, right? Instead, it's a cycle, just like how you would have with organic materials. You would make it, use it, and then you would cycle it. You would cycle it so that at the end, the waste material is also the the raw material for a new lifespan. And so circular is really the model that allows us to solve this problem, to reach the compromise, if you will, where we can use these modern materials without destroying the planet. Got you. And just on definitions, so you're basically doing upcycling here, I think. Just explain what that means, because people might just think it's just recycling. Yeah, so recycling, the idea is, you know, you're you're turning something back into the sim- similar thing. Like you're taking a shopping bag, you're somehow making a shopping bag again. Maybe it's not 100% the old shopping bag. There's only 20% of the old <laughs> shopping bag in it, 80% brand new stuff. Yep. But that's like the idea of recycling. 
Downcycling is if you take, you know, say a plastic bag, instead of making the same thing again, you're making a lower value thing. Maybe you're turning it into fuel and then you're burning it in one use and it becomes CO2 and it's a dirty fuel. And so that's an example of downcycling. It's downcycled because you get less value at the end of the day. And there are also other consequences. Upcycling is when you're taking, for example, that shopping bag again, like what Novaloop is doing through our technology, we can transform that shopping bag into a high performance material that can be used to build uh, running shoes. And so that material can be used over and over again over the course of years and enable, you know, it, an athlete to be able to to, you know, do the things that they, they want to do. And what's also important is that the performance of this material. So our first product is a rubber like elastomer called thermoplastic polyurethane. And so TPU. So this material that we make out of shopping bags, if you will, is a completely different material at the end of the day. It's worth 70 times more than the material we start with and also has the same quality as the comparable TPUs that are made from fossil fuels. So that's an example of of upcycling. Sometimes people might also use that term to say, you know, we use a bunch of shopping bags, we melted them, and we made a beautiful piece of furniture or art. When you initially were setting out, you were looking at like using bacteria to do this. Just explain in layman's language what the sort of process for how you do this, the the chemistry of it. You know, our current technology, um, I would say there was definitely a journey to get here. The initial idea was to look at, are there ways to biodegrade plastics? I mean, in nature, organics are cycled because we have bacteria and fungi and detrivores, right? And so um, I was always interested in, could you know, could there be bacteria that have evolved in highly contaminated places to be able to essentially eat and break, break down the plastics on a biochemical level? And so that was my initial in, I would say, on the scientific perspective on the plastic problem. But as we started working on this more, we realized that there's a reason why there's plastic pollution out in the environment. If you leave it there, it doesn't just rot and go away. It's because bacteria are not able to effectively break it down. If you rely on biochemistry, because plastics are solid, you know, you need things that are more soluble to properly, you know, be be biodegraded. It's also a man-made synthetic structure, molecular structure that bacteria are not really well adapted to consuming. It's so it's so carbon rich, you know. Mm. It's just very, very slow. And so what we ended up doing is saying, well, if we look at the industrial chemistry, all the, the years of knowledge on how to scale that, it's just a much more scalable and fast approach to actually look at, you know, are there oxidation, oxidative approaches, which is similar to what the bacteria, the biochemistry was. But can we oxidize the plastics using pure chemistry and be able to achieve the efficiencies needed to deal with the quantities we have? That's really helpful. And let's get into some plastic acronyms, Sue. Can you explain to people the difference between low-density polyethylene or LDPE and most recycled plastics, such as like, obviously, one of the most recycled ones is PET used in drink bottles and HDPE in milk bottles and yogurt pots. (laughs) Just explain the difference. Yeah, so Novalube is focused on any kind of polyethylene. So like I mentioned, there, there are many kinds of plastics, and the nomenclature for plastics is really based on what is the structure of it, right? So if you have polyethylene, it just means many ethylenes. So it's made by ethylene gas being put together into a long chain. If it's polypropylene, it just means many propylenes um, and it's put together. 
PET is actually two subunits, polyethylene terephthalate. So you have terephthalic acid in it. So you have AB, and that just keeps repeating AB, 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 etc. And so that kind of explains the weird names. And the abbreviations, you know, PE is just for polyethylene. And then they add on the densities, which is just simply how densely are you layering those, are you stacking those, those, you know, those long polymer chains when you're creating that plastic material, that resin. And so there are many densities of polyethylene. There's low density, linear low density, high density, cross-linked polyethylene. There's just many kinds. And so, you know, in, in our case, we actually focus on any kind of polyethylene. You know, we, we're more particular to how that actual structure is built. And then there are some companies, for example, that are specializing in PET. Companies are specializing in, in polypropylene. And there's an entire ecosystem of us that's emerging together. Just to sort of simplify that a little bit, what, what are you adding? What are you bringing that is not there that wasn't being done before? Yeah, so what we're doing, we're first of all using polyethylene, which has been extremely hard to break down. So low-density polyethylene, the stuff that makes shopping bags, for example, there's only about a 5% recycling rate of that. When it's post-consumer, means a consumer has used it, versus post-industrial means it only stayed at the factory where it's being manufactured. So post-consumer low-density polyethylene, um, there's only about 5% recycling rate for that in the U.S. High-density polyethylene post-consumer, there's about 10% is being recycled. So for us, we're focusing on that, those majorities of it that's not being recycled. And what we're doing differently, you know, there's a reason those are not being recycled more is because there's not enough technical methods to create valuable enough products that people want to buy. <laughs> so, you know, they've sort of maxed out. The economics of it don't make sense. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's based on the economics of it. I mean, if, if they could use current mechanical recycling means, which means they shred the plastic, they wash it, they melt it. And if, if that can make good enough quality stuff, then more people would buy it and you would have a higher recycling rate. But the issue is plastic is limited. When you shred and wash and melt it, you get a poor quality product, you get a downcycled product in that second generation. And so to be able to even make a shopping bag from an old shopping bag, you can only use sometimes only up to 20 or 30% of that old bag. Otherwise, the new bag would just simply not hold together. It would just fall apart. And so what we are doing is we're, we're taking the polyethylenes that other people really struggle to take because maybe it's too contaminated, it's colored, maybe it has, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, when contamination, there's many different kinds. <laughs> and so, so there's, there's a lot of problems with it. And what we do that's unique is we chemically break it down, we turn it into basic building blocks, chemical building blocks, and we create new products out of it. And so in this way, we essentially create a new channel or new outlet to turn the polyethylenes that are stuck into valuable products that are marketable. That's really helpful. So that, that sort of chemical upcycling you've just talked about just sounds great, but there must be some issues. What, you know, is, is there issues around costs, around how environmentally benign it is? Yes, we have been very careful about that because it's very important to create chemical upcycling technology that's not just making a, a decent product at the end. The product has to be economical. People need to want to buy it. They need to be able to afford it. And the whole process has to be sustainable, has to be better than the status quo, whether it's how that end product is being made today, which is in our category, it's made from fossil fuels. We're competing against those guys and we're about 30 percent better, less than CO2 footprint. Or, you know, they're looking at other things. For example, you know, the feedstock that you're using, are you using something that other people would buy anyway because it's actually recyclable or are you using something that is en route to the landfill or 
to the incinerator. And if it's from the incinerator, you get even more CO2 avoidance because, uh, you know, it would directly be put up in the air as opposed to be more kind of long term stored. And so these are these are things that are all very important to us. And we're at the point where we have this core technology. We have a path to a product. The product's been validated with sports companies. And the entire process is now demonstrated by third-party life cycle assessment to be better than the status quo. And so what we're, what we're doing now, the biggest challenge here is the scale-up. We're bringing this technology from something that is you know, in the labs at the pilot scales now into a commercial scale. And we're in this last phase, you know, essentially, of de-risking the technology, of creating the engineering designs for this first chemical plant. When do you hope to get there? When might this sort of commercial stage come? Our timeline right now is, you know, end of this year, we will have, I would say, the preliminary plans for this first project. And next year, we will be in full mode fundraising for it, really working the partners to orchestrate and put it in motion. Usually it takes about two years to build a plant like this. Got you. And and you talked earlier about this sort of so-called circular economy concept. And at the moment, you're dealing with sort of products that, you know, people are putting out there already. How much, you know, how much easier would it might it be if companies when they're designing products start thinking at the outset about the fact that there might be the possibility of breaking them down into their chemical components? You know, what do you know, I suppose what I'm asking is, you know, how could society sort of design things better so that it's easier for people like yourself to you know, enable them to be reused? Yeah, I, I think following kind of the rule of simplicity is is helpful. So, you know, when you have a plastic water bottle. The bottle itself is PET. The cap is HDP. And then the wrap on around it with the label, that's actually a multi-layer material with yeah. PET, LDP, EVOH. There's like a whole, whole bunch of stuff. So um, I think the, the rule of simplicity, the thing is it's designed that way for purpose, is so that the water can be kept... Performance, right? Yeah, exactly. But but can we rethink so that the whole bottle is literally just one material? That means the whole thing can be recycled. Because right now, even when a water bottle gets to a gets to a recycling plant, gets a sorting a waste sorting plant, the bottle caps never get recycled because the the people who are buying the bottles they just want the body of it. They just want the PET, and the, you know. So so you have a lot of these issues because is is poor planning, I, I would say, or or just limitations due to performance expectations only being able to be met by that type of design. There's that. But, you know, designers also have their hands tied in a way, right? Because they only have the library materials that they have to choose from. (laughs) And so if those materials themselves are inherently challenged in how they can be reused and repurposed later, like I mentioned, polyethylene has these problems, right, where it mechanically gets downcycled, then what else are they supposed to use? You know, industrial designers can only use things that are commercially available, right? I mean, otherwise they would design some prototypes that could never become mass commercialized into bottles that everyone can use, right? So this is an ecosystem issue. It's not just something we can design out. We're talking to the scientist and tech entrepreneur Miranda Wang. Miranda has made it clear that we need to rethink our relationship with plastic. With organisations including Greenpeace reporting that a truckload of plastic enters our oceans every minute, we can no longer turn a blind eye to the life cycle of plastic products we use once they're thrown in the bin. And pointing fingers at governments for having poor waste management techniques and emerging economies who are relying on plastic to develop hasn't fixed the problem. 
With her innovative technology, Miranda is paving the way for plastic to have a second, third, maybe even evergreen life, a concept which for over a century was inconceivable. But why has this idea and technology only just come of age now? For the longest time, very few people were aware of what was really going on. We really brushed this problem under the rug and said that we were recycling. You know, in fact, my local jurisdiction says the recycling rate is over 90 <laughs> percent. And so, but you know, that's just that just means they're not landfilling over 90 percent of the stuff that's going to the the you know household recycling bin in the local landfill. <laughs> that doesn't mean they're really recycling all of it, right? They don't really know what happens to it once the bale gets taken out of the of the sorting plant. So when we don't have full traceability from, you know, the point where waste gets collected all the way through to what happens, when there's lack of full traceability, we as a society have a hard time finding faults in the existing system. And so that's why it took so many years until it it just became you know, completely broken, you know, by China saying they don't want to take any more of this and everyone having nowhere to put it. So it was stockpiled and this became an entire crash in that market, in that commodity market. You know, I, I would say it's it's a lot of it is ignorance, but it's not ignorance because people are naive. It's, it's ignorance because it's really a hard problem that if you point a finger to it, you better have a solution. And it's not a it's not an issue that any policymaker can solve on their own. This this is a systemic issue that needs new technologies. And talking of those technologies, what, what sort of, you know, so once you've managed to break things down, what sort of products are you upcycling them to? What's like a couple of examples? I mentioned, you know, we take polyethylenes. So that can be anything from shampoo bottles, laundry detergent bottles. Some of those already have some mechanical recycling markets. But it can also be low-density polyethylenes. We mentioned shopping bags. But it can be, you know, there, there's a whole lot of other things, like the bags you get for in your cereal to, you know, the saran wrap. All that filmy type to, stuff, right? All, yeah, yeah. all that film stuff, yeah, yeah. all that film, yeah. anything that wraps, you know, some yeah, sort yeah, yeah. of products. And also you can look at a larger scale, construction plastic, a lot of plastic used to mask, you know, something when you're painting it. Or also palette wrap, things that are protecting, you know, you know, you might not see it as a consumer, but it's in the back of that cafeteria, you know, that you're you're dining in. So there's a whole lot of stuff in the world that's polyethylene. So we use that as our starting material and the product that we make. So we actually have a platform technology where by uh, decomposing or oxidizing the polyethylene, we create a suite of chemical intermediates or chemical building blocks. And these chemical intermediates can be used to make actually a whole variety of platformer products. The first category we're focusing on is polyurethane. So polyurethane is a very useful set of performance materials. You have materials in that category ranging from what your memory foam mattress, literally the whole block is, all the way to to make your running shoe. You know, Adidas actually made um, an entire running shoe called the Loop Shoe that's all TPU. So, you know, that was interesting because it was kind of a demonstration of anyone's only going to make a shoe out of one material. They actually chose TPU mm. because of all its performance and, and comfort features. Plus, you've got my attention now because I'm a runner, so now you're really <laughs> excited. And what sort of stuff could you make in the future, do you think? You know, you mentioned gave a few examples there. What other sort of applications? We see a lot of applications, you know, altogether when we came down and started calculating what that could mean in market size, 
the number came out to be $140 billion in total addressable markets. And these are this is the value of the markets for products we can make by digesting polyethylene from, from this new technology. There's lots of things, everything from paints to biodegradable materials to new materials that maybe don't exist today that could be created and introduced into markets. And that's an interesting challenge, right? Because we need to then sit down and say, Okay, so we have this pathway to go from existing materials that's creating huge volumes that's getting created more and few people really, you know, have outlets for it. We create a new outlet for it. But what do we turn it into? If we're going to make new things out of it, how do we decide whether we should be making those things, whether that's a good idea for the world? And so this is all very interesting, you know, but I think this is, you know, a way for companies like Novolube to lead the world into the future is, you know, to, for us to get there, we only have what we have today, mm, yeah. right? We have these these mass commoditized materials. They're has to be a path to get to the future, which is in the future, we're going to have pro- probably a bunch of different materials, but they're all fully circular. And we abandon some of these older ones. But there is a journey to get there. So, Miranda, you won the Rolex Award for Enterprise in 2019. For anyone listening who may not be aware, the Rolex Awards for Enterprise support individuals with innovative projects that improve life on the planet, expand knowledge, propose solutions to major challenges, or preserve our natural and cultural heritage for future generations. Spanning more than four decades since 1976, the 155 Rolex Award laureates include an extraordinary cohort of pioneers across a wide range of geographical locations and skills. The awards were designed to fill a void in corporate philanthropy by supporting exceptional individuals around the world who had no or little access to traditional funding. Laureates have included archaeologists, engineers, entrepreneurs, filmmakers, geologists, physicists, sociologists, wildlife biologists, and more. So, Miranda, I mean, how has that sort of recognition helped you? You know, you were talking earlier about the need to scale up. How has that helped you scale up? I think the Rolex community has just been, first of all, a very impressive group. I mean, you have people who are explorers, who are top scientists in their fields, and people like me, you know, who are trying to build a business that also does good for the world. And when you have a whole group of people like this, what you notice, the common thread, is that there's just a abundance of optimism. I mean, there's so much we can do with our time here to reverse the problems, to lead everybody into the future. And so I think, you know, one of the biggest benefits of being part of this community has been connecting with others who are like-minded, seeing the connections between all these issues from the natural world to the industrial problems, um, and also at the same time having this platform where I can, you know, speak to people like you and the audience here, you know, about the problems that that we're dealing with and maybe not be so well-educated about yet. This is the sort of thing that makes a difference. Looking forward, Miranda, we've been talking about recycling and, you know, people listening might think, I I just want plastic pollution fixed. And and obviously upcycling is one part of it. I mean, from the experts I've sort of spoken to in the past, it's clear that if we don't do something about the demand for plastic as well, then we're never going to fix this problem, are we? Yes, that's a tricky one. (laughs) That's a tricky one because it's, it's almost the same as the carbon problem, right? Why is it that, you know, wealthy nations have gotten to this point because they've been able to create all this waste? Why is it that for the emerging nations that are going to be rising in in the future, why is it that they can't do it with these modern materials? You know, it's just it's very challenging. But we do need to curb demand because 
this deficit between, if you look at what's called the circularity gap, which is how much material we projected to produce versus how much of it we can truly recycle, even with our existing technology, even if we do it much better and we really push it, that gap is significant. And even if you layer on new technologies like the ones Novaloop is developing, we still will have a gap. (laughs) And so the only way you can close it is through reduction. And some of the reduction is going to come from some systemic changes. You know, you're looking at, for example, some systems in localized communities where it might make sense, where instead of having a single-use sort of throwaway system, you have reverse logistics. You're recycling a Tupperware you're, or you are, you know, taking a, a product, physical product back and you are, you're recycling it so that, that that material never ends up in the landfill or need to go to the landfill. These are things that will make a big impact. And the overall reduction of stuff in general, you know, build better stuff, think through it more when you build it. And as a consumer, don't attach your personal worth with just the stuff you have, you know. It matters a lot more. It's not just how many things you have, but how much quality is in those things and how good are they? How much does it make sense with the era that we live in? These are all things we need to consider. Buy better where you can, not to mention buy less. In terms of the sort of next steps for you, we talked about your, you know, hopes for this sort of commercial plant. Talk me through how things evolve for you and your company. Yeah. So, I mean, we're envisioning right now for this first plant really to focus around the core technology we've created, which is uh, we created an acronym for ATOD, Accelerated Thermal Oxidative Decomposition. This is the novel stuff that we've created. It takes the polyethylene, it breaks it down into the chemical intermediate you know, building blocks. And so it's really focused on this. We're, we're building a plant that is, uh, we're looking for co-location partners that can host a lot of the infrastructure already. And we're focused on this plant and trying to make it as automated as we can be. And the purpose here is to demonstrate that first this technology is scalable second of all that is a profitable enterprise and when you have both of those two things for a new technology that's what is needed for it to be largely multiplied for the positive benefit of it to be experienced and so we're in the process right now of going through engineering designs on it we have some internal targets that we need to meet in terms of our own development and, you know, this year is, is just largely for everybody in the company, you know, head down and working very hard to, to meet those goals. So I'm sure you wouldn't argue, obviously, that it's a silver bullet for our plastic waste problem. But if it all goes swimmingly and according to plan, Miranda, what sort of dent can it make in the sort of plastic waste issue we have? With these calculations, it's more to see it as like the boundaries of the ranges. It depends a lot on the products we make, how marketable it is, right? But based on kind of my on the napkin calculation that I did once, so for polyethylene category, which is a third of all the plastics out there, with our technology, we can address somewhere around 25% of that. And to go beyond that, it's possible, but it requires even more infrastructural investment and new innovation. So it can make a significant dent. It's not going to solve the whole problem. It's a big chunk of the pie, though, if you can do a quarter. And just sort of zooming like right out, Miranda, just looking beyond just plastics, you know, looking at the state of the environment globally, a bit more broadly, how hopeful are you, you know, as, as a species that will get a handle on, you know, you touched on carbon emissions earlier on. We've been talking, obviously, about about plastic pollution how hopeful are you? You know, for, for me, it's not, I actually don't work really hard every day thinking I do this because I have so much hope. 
it's more that I feel like there's no choice. Like, you know, in every generation, there's a doomsday thing. You know, there's always something we think is going to end the future. And that's one of the differences between humans and other species is that we can see the threats and we are seeing it now, which is actually, to me, excellent news. And so it's, it's more of a fact of how much can we do? How much can, alignment can we reach around the world to get to? Because there's so many things that we already have solutions for, that we have resources to do, but we don't have infinite resources at all. It's not so much of a hope, it's, it's a dial, right? <laughs> Sometimes it is. A, it feels like a bit of a luck. The system is so big here, you know, this global you know, community that we have. When you ask me, you know, what gives me hope, I, I see it really as as necessity, uh, you know, I, I, I think as, as humans, you, you have to have some belief that there is the future, that you will continue being part of the future or your, your children, your descendants. If you don't have that view, I think that goes against our, our basic human nature, which I know some people nowadays say, you know, they don't want to have kids because the future is so bleak. But think about if you don't have a future, if you don't invest in that and work toward that, then you're definitely going to have a bad ending. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you have to continue to not lose for sure. It's an ongoing struggle, right? That's just what life is. You've been listening to Planet Hope with me, Adam Vaughan, and my guest, scientist and tech entrepreneur, Miranda Wang. This podcast has been brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex. The series producer is Anya Pierce, the production coordinator is Oliver Adamson, and the production assistant is Shana Johnson. You can listen to us for free on The Times radio app and download every episode in this series from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Planet Hope is brought to you by The Times in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. For nearly a century, Rolex has championed pioneering explorers who have shed light on the world and pushed the boundaries of human endeavour. Today's explorers are no exception, but they have a new focus, to make the planet perpetual. The Earth, once a playground for discovery, now needs our help to protect and preserve the natural world. Rolex supports the individuals and organisations who are protecting our world and inspiring generational hope as a part of its commitment to a perpetual planet. Discover more about the Rolex Perpetual Planet Initiative on rolex.org.